Uh, so Matt, a few episodes back, I think back in episode three, we were talking about existentialism and the problem of the self. And we kind of ended our conversation talking about how suffering is inherent to what it means to be like a conscious being, because there's like this gap between yourself and your, uh, your idea of yourself. Um, and we kind of decided to leave it off there because it provided us with an excellent opportunity to talk about our logo, the SufferMap logo. So how about you give us like a quick introduction on, or an explanation on what exactly our logo is, what it means and why we chose it as our symbol. The, yeah, the logo is not a dollar sign for everybody keeping track at home. Yeah, yeah it's not some <laughs> abstract dollar sign. Yeah, no, yeah. we don't worship the god of capital. Absolutely um, not. No, it's, a, it's, it's actually a math theme from Lacan's work. So that S with the slash through it is the bard subject. And, and what Lacan means by that basically is that the subject, uh, I, I experience myself as the subject of actions. I'm able to act and to think and... I have this position um, structurally within language where I can refer to myself as an I. Um, that's to be a subject. But to be a subject is actually, um, it's, it's an effect of a gap, actually. So it's the result of something that was barred. Um, and this, this, goes into, uh, this goes into Lacan's theory of the symbolic, which is, is the realm of language and the social. So in order for me to enter the realm of language and the social world, um, you know, because in the social world, we exchange symbols with each other. Um, language is, is symbols. We, we exchange these symbols together in order to create community. And in order for me to enter into that structure of symbols, uh, there's uh, this something I have to give up. I have to give up. I have to give up my own personal enjoyment. And this is where the Oedipus complex comes in. You know, we think about the Oedipus complex as like, oh, you want to you want to kill your dad and have sex with your right. mom. And right. that's where yeah. it originally came from. And what's interesting about Lacan is that Lacan takes that myth and he sort of he turns it into a theoretical struggle where basically in order for you to enter into language, you know, enter into society like your dad is sort of the authority in society. And he says, OK, you're allowed to enter into society Um but in order to do that, you have to give up on your sexual desire for your mom. And what that basically means is you have to give up on your desire to return to whatever state of complete fullness and happiness that you experienced as a child before you perceived yourself as different from other people. As a side note, this is also one thing that I think is super fascinating, even especially when my nephew is born, um, about psychoanalysis analysis especially with Lacan is he talks about how the uh, child views uh, correct me if I'm getting this right but the child views his mother's body his or her mother's body as their own body yes right so there is no differentiation between mom's body and baby's body it's all the same body in the mind of the child right exactly so that sort of primordial unity that like womb-like existence where there's no distinction between mother and child the, the child is always wanting to get back to that. That's the sort of like full, complete satisfaction. Uh, what Lacan calls jouissance, it's, it's enjoyment. It's this complete, full, unending enjoyment of unity with the source. And what he says is you have to give that up in order to enter into language. Because what happens in language 
is that you have to externalize yourself in a symbol. You replace yourself with the symbol I, me, we. These symbols come to stand in for you. And so what happens is the you that preceded language, the, the you that exists, quote unquote, outside of language is not real. That That's the subject is just an effect of being inside a closed system. And for Lacan, every closed system is incomplete. So imagine, um, imagine uh, like the Dewey Decimal System and you're going through the library and there's books 220.1 and there's book 220.3, but there's no 220.2 between them. You see the two books together and the, so you know that there's a gap there. There's a, there's, there's actually no gap there in reality because there's no book there and there is no 220.2, but you, you perceive a gap there because the system says there's a gap there. The system created a purely formal gap in reality there. And that is what the subject is. The subject is this purely formal gap. So um, this has been pretty theoretical heavy. I hope that we haven't turned people off, but the kind of sum, the sum of this is that in order to be a subject, it involves this sort of primordial giving up, this primordial cut, this primordial gap um, between who we perceive we are and society. And what's interesting about Lacan is that he actually says that like that idea that there is a you before the group, that there's like a you outside of the group. He actually says that's an illusion. Like that's right. actually created by um, being a part of the symbolic order. Interesting. And this is, I actually mentioned something like this, right? There was this idea of, uh, in the existentialist, this, this idea of like getting away or like somehow diversifying yourself away from the group is a myth because humans are too social. Like biologically, we are just simply too much ingrained within the social aspect to ever like truly be free in like a truly individual self. And in, in order to do so, you actually have to give up precisely what it is that makes you an individual, right? Um, I always give people the example of um, how the very, th I mean, if you just think about it, think about yourself and kind of what has made you yourself, the very things that make you an individual, say, you know, a unique individual with your own particular desires and, and views and emotions are also the very things which inevitably and necessarily constrict you within the group, right? For example, I talk like my brother. I have a very, very similar cadence to my older brother, right? I walk like someone from my mom's side, right? Um, I think like the people that I grew up with that taught me how to think, right? So the very things that have made me into myself are also the very things that make me a part of the group. Yeah, this is something that um, both Foucault and Lacan are doing, but we're focusing on Lacan right now. And they're focusing on how even the things that are sort of the most deep and personal for you are actually not unique to you. They are the result of some sort of, um, some sort of group, some sort of socialization. They're like the, the inner design, like the, the realm within you of the interior of your body and your heart, where you feel that that's kind of your special place of freedom is actually the place where you are the least free. That's actually the place where all of your family's past traumas and your society's fantasies 
and the values of your community and the things that have been said to you, they're all sort of mishmashed together in there and they produce your desires. They produce your fantasies. They produce um, even your, even the thoughts that are in your head. Where does it all come from? It is, it is structurally produced by things that are operating on the outside of you. Interesting. And so in relating to the Bard subject, why was it so important that all of this is a part of the suffer map identity? Why is that essential? I think for me, uh, and I don't know about you, Tyler, um, for me, it's that I, I accept that state of affairs. It's that I accept that in order to be a part of the symbolic realm where I can exchange symbols with you right now, I accept that the cost is that gap. I accept that there is this inevitable suffering of I will experience myself as always kind of falling short. Like my words will never, they will never express what I want them to. Um, but that that's, that's just an effect of language itself actually. And I, I accept that I will feel that way. And I accept that I will never feel fully understood. Um, but in, but I, but I say, you know what, I'm willing to accept that because I know that I can truly commune with other people through language. And I can truly commune with others through sharing action and symbols and through loving people. Um, but that there, that, that never makes that gap go away. Um, I think that we just, and I think this is where it gets to, um, we could talk about this more another time, but I think this is where grace comes in, where grace is able to traverse that gap. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent with what you've said. I, I would also add on that, and I mentioned this in the last episode as well, that I think that a really good example or, or a really good image, an icon of what it means to love other people is kind of like Jacob and the angel, right? There, There's this struggle. There's this like this immense difficulty in loving other people and being with other people, right? Um, and I also, I, I take that deal. You know, 10 times out of 10, I think the smart idea is to take that deal and to know what it is you're getting into, right? Uh, to love people um, as, for example, a limited, finite creature is fraught with difficulties. And, you know, this this goes to the very project of SufferMap, which is to map our suffering, right? It's to, it's to have a conversation about what it means to be a limited, suffering creature amongst other limited, finite, suffering beings, I think that the the map imagery for me makes me think about how we have to we have to create some sort of schema that we can overlay because suffering isn't meaningful in and of itself, but we can take right. we can take it sort of like this raw material, and we could map something onto it and make something new out of it. Absolutely, and I think that um, one of the things that is probably most important for this entire, at least for me. For this entire idea is, and this is a theme that we've talked about a lot, is that I think that diagnosis is something that's extremely important. So being able to actually like diagnose what particular, how it is that suffering arises in us and in others, um, goes to the very heart of the project of, or at least our project, right? To love and support other people, I think, is something that I want to spend my entire life doing. And in doing so, I have to be able to diagnose what those problems are and how it is that I am suffering and how others are suffering as well. Understanding the psychological bent, especially in how for me, especially how it relates to the existentialists, makes me much more effectual in understanding human interaction and understanding how to support and love other people. 
I think reading, reading people through the lens of suffering is an extremely useful lens to, to when you're considering their behavior, why they act the way they do. And um, this is kind of why I think Nietzsche is so interesting and why he's been so influential for me is yeah, same. he really sees, he sees pain as kind of one of the most fundamental motivating factors for human beings. And for him, particularly it's things like psychic pain. So for him, memory is probably one of the greatest problems for human beings, because if there are things we can't forget, then it's like, it's like a, it's like a sore deep in your mind. If you can't forget something, then there is this sore that's just cankering in your mind and it produces this pain and human beings act out of that pain. Um, whereas I think something interesting that psychoanalysis brings to the table is how, um, how we enjoy that pain. Psychoanalysis brings that dimension where it says, okay, yeah, like we agree that pain is kind of at the heart of how human beings act. But what is especially interesting is it's not just this banal Aristotelian view that like beings go towards pleasantness and away from pain, but psychoanalysis in includes this third element where it says, no, human beings actually enjoy pain. And that's yes. what makes us so complicated is that we want to like, like somebody can be doing something very bad for themselves and they nonetheless enjoy it. And that is, that is such a dark and difficult place to be because that person doesn't even realize they have a problem or they may fully realize their problem and not care because they derive so much enjoyment from their own suffering. Uh, the, the, when you bring this up, it always reminds me of, uh, when I was smoking cigarettes and me and my friends who also smoked cigarettes, we would always talk about how we loved the burn. Uh, like there was something about, I, I used to always tell people that people will say, don't smoke cigarettes because it's disgusting. It's gross. It smells bad. Everything about you will smell bad and it'll, you know, rot your teeth out, destroy your lungs and kill you. And I say, well, that means like half true. The real reason why you shouldn't smoke cigarettes is because they're amazing and they will kill you because you won't be able to stop. Right. And I think that it's not, even that is not fully accurate because when I was smoking cigarettes, the part, one of the things that I loved the most is how awful it was, you know, um, how I gained some sort of enjoyment from the burn in my lungs and the way in which it made me dangerous and sullen looking. Um, all of these things make, well, they make suffering in and of itself and also like an extremely complicated thing to diagnose and to understand in other people. Yeah. And I think it's important to take that feeling and not just connect it to like, Oh, you know, Tyler was engaged in some vice, but because he enjoyed it so much, you know, he couldn't, he right. couldn't stop. It's important to take that and read it into even actions that we perceive as good. For instance, like right. what enjoyment does the preacher derive from his pulpit pounding from this? What, what enjoyment does the martyr derive? What enjoyment does the, the henpecked wife derive this is not a. This is not a defense of, of. Um, this is not me attempting to victim blame. But in what sense is there a way in which we can find ourselves in codependent relationships that are bad for both of us, and yet we derive some, some uh, sense of enjoyment from? Oh well, I am the one who's holding this all together. You know, like oh he's awful and terrible, but you know, I'm the I'm the superior one in this relationship. You know, there, there's all of these different ways that we can be engaged in seemingly outward good behavior, you know, loving another person, 
being a good leader, you know, being somebody who's respected and looked up to in a community. But in what way are we just deriving enjoyment from our pain? In what way are those ways of extracting greater and greater amounts of enjoyment from pain? Yeah, this is especially prevalent in politics, right? I think that, you know, that young, uh, recently converted liberal or recently converted conservative enjoys the chaos that their ideas cause, you know, say in the, um, you know, say a, a young liberal person in a very conservative family enjoys the chaos even though that chaos is extremely negative, but enjoys the chaos of like calling out other people, calling them racist, right? Calling them sexist, kind of uh, towing the liberal line and the liberal agenda. And the same thing happens in the conservative circles, right? I mean, it's like, especially during COVID-19, this was uh, particularly prevalent, right? And I think that um, this is also especially, I know that I have uh, definitely followed suit religiously, right? There's this enjoyment you gain from being other, from being like stripped away from the rest of the from the rest of society, right? Calling out all the terrible things that you see in society and calling out other people, even though you know you might end up ruining relationships along the way. Yeah. So in in that conversation with the the conservative dad and the young liberal kid who comes back from his first semester at college, both parties are enjoying themselves. Because right. the the you know the new liberal kid he's got he's fired up about these new ideas and he feels this sense of righteousness and his eyes are open and the father derives this enjoyment of uh, watching his own stereotypes about liberals get confirmed again and again and of this this sense of moral superiority and almost indulging in this in this sort of pity and you know you know just watch until the world breaks you son sort of attitude there's so many things that these people are enjoying and it's and when people enjoy things there's nothing harder to get people hooked unhooked from right you're absolutely correct i i think that there's also a uh before we wrap up and move on to the main topic i think that there's a final dimension uh something that i'm working on right now i was always in, intrigued by the uh, scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is like sweating blood and he asks his disciples to wait up with him and um, and they fall asleep, right? And twice Jesus comes to them and says, can you not even wait one hour while I pray, right? I mean, and Jesus is like distraught. He's like broken, right? Um, it's like a really, really sad scene. It's right before he is handed over to um, the authorities to later be crucified. Um and I was, I, I got thinking about this story again because I saw this video that went viral on TikTok of this girl who was, she was basically like acting out the story of what it was like for her to go to grade school as a young kid in a neglectful household. She would show up every single morning with her hair had not been combed. Uh, she was wearing the same clothing for, you know, three days straight. And, uh, you know, she was, very much the kind of the image of a child that has been neglected by her parents, right? And every single day, one of her teachers would single her out and take her to the side and brush her hair every single morning. And I, <laughs> I was watching this and I was just like crying in my room, watching this like incredibly beautiful video of one person recognizing the suffering and the lack in another person and reaching out and saying, I understand that. And 
just doing something as simple as just brushing this girl's hair. How powerful. I mean, that girl's never going to forget that teacher, right? Ever. And that, that teacher has had a permanent impact on that child's life. I mean, that person's now an adult, right? She's like in her 20s. Um, I think that there's the second dimension as well where, um, and maybe this also has something to do with enjoyment, where the suffering in other people is something that we can recognize and that we can work towards and that we can support others because we share the exact same lack. It's the sharing of lack that creates kind of a revolutionary possibility where we can all realize like, oh, you have that too. And suddenly the pieces start to connect and we can start to come together and build something different uh, because it's, it's, it is the thing that we share. Precisely. And this is, this is the lesson that we learn in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Uh, that it's actually a lesson in love, except it's a negative lesson in love. The ultimate failure of the disciples is that they betrayed Jesus in the garden there by falling asleep because they were un... And I want to use the term betrayal, and I don't want to stress too heavily that word, but I think that they were unable to love Jesus because they were unable to recognize him when he was suffering. Um, and they were unable to be with Jesus when they were suffering. There's this great song by this by Radiohead called True Love Waits off of their most recent uh, full-length, A Moonlight, A Moonshaped Pool. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that, especially when it comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and this example of this girl on TikTok, that true love waits precisely because true love is able to notice the lack in other people, right? The disciples were unable to wait up with Jesus because they were unable to meet his suffering in any real way. And the woman who brushes the girl's hair is able precisely to do that, exactly. Okay, welcome back to Suffer Map. My name is Tyler. And this is Matthew. And thank you for joining us again. Um, thanks for sticking around. Uh, this week, our main conversation is going to be centered around a short essay that Matthew wrote not too long ago entitled Beyond Blame or Outcomes Without Agents. Uh, I'm very excited for this because I loved the essay when it first came out. And uh, I think it's very appropriate uh, for kind of some of the stuff that we went through in 2020 and uh, some stuff that will inevitably be cropping back up again en masse in the next few years. So Matt, give us a little bit of information about this paper, why you wrote it and what it's about. Thanks, Tyler. Um, I wrote this actually in response to a meme I saw on Facebook. It was really interesting. Um, I'm not really sure how to describe the meme, so it's probably not terribly helpful for me to try. Um, but needless, needless to say, it, it sort of, it tried to break down, um, it tried to break down an error, quote unquote, in liberal thinking, quote unquote, um, and tried to co- to expose it as, as the foolishness that it is. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I, I just, I, that meme is actually really interesting because it says a lot about how conservatives think. And it, that really sent me down a line of thinking about like, why why is it hard for conservatives to think about outcomes that don't have particular agents that you can blame? Like for instance, the idea of racism without racists seems to be this, uh, just this insurmountable wall for the conservative. Like the idea that like, because I'm not racist or because I don't do racist things that the, the charge of racism is overblown or, or the idea that because 
you know, I'm not particularly committing racist acts. How, how am I contributing to the problem? Um, and I began to think about how conservatives have a really hard time thinking in terms of systems instead of people. And they're very, like, they're very focused on agents who can be blamed. And I, and I take, actually take agent to mean um, an entity which can be blamed. Because we take, uh, you know, we don't take dogs to be agents. We don't blame dogs for, you know, what they do. They're just, they're dogs, <laughs> you know. Right, um, but right. we do take human beings to be blameworthy. We treat them as, I can hold you accountable for your actions. And I think the primary reason we can do that is language. Um, you can't hold somebody accountable if you can't call them out in language or communicate or address them. And I think that, so I basically think that any any being which is linguistic can be held accountable, which means they can be blamed. But what's, but what's interesting about that is that therefore a system, you know, is not an agent under that definition. So it can't quote unquote be blamed, but systems produce outcomes and you could have a system of you could have a system that's completely composed of non-racist people with good intentions in their hearts and it could still produce racist outcomes and i think that like the power of sociology is that it can study systems in abstraction from human intentions and i think that like conservatives are just so easily distracted by individual agents and their intentions and it's like it's like every time there's a cop shooting the question is like well was the was the cop racist in their heart and it's like no 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 no, no. like that's not the question here right you're so focused it becomes a question of like was the cop a good guy or was he a bad guy and was the guy he shot a good guy or a bad guy it's like okay this is second grade conversation you know like the real question is like what produced, uh, what system produced the conditions that made that possible? And what system fed into making that situation happen? And what were all the factors involved? And uh, I think that centering the conversation around cop shootings like is, is really difficult, is really tough. Um, I think it's unfortunate that so much of the conversation uh, is centered around those sort of incidents, but I think that they capture really well how conservatives are really good at hijacking that conversation and making it about agents to be blamed and not systems to be understood. As a side note, before I respond to what you're saying, I remember uh, I was seeing a bunch of conservatives online referring to the trial of Derek Chauvin as the trial of George Floyd. Uh, Even though... George Floyd is not the one on trial. It's Derek Chauvin, yeah. right? It's uh, he. Uh, George Floyd passed away, right? Like he's not under trial. There's nothing we can do. Uh, anyway, um, I do think it's very interesting that even in cases like these, which are which seem like pretty fairly cut and dry, there's still so many different like um, escape routes that uh, uh, people attempt. I guess what is Right on the top of my mind, the two questions, maybe three questions that come to mind when I read your paper and I hear you talking about this is, first off, why, why is it why is it that some people find it extremely difficult or impossible to think sociologically? Uh, and 
what are the barriers, kind of maybe more universally, what are the barriers to uh, barriers inherent to sociological thinking? And thirdly, how is it that for certain thinkers, and, and this is probably a bigger question that we can get into a little bit later, but how is it that for certain thinkers and certain people, evil or bad stuff seems to just kind of rise up out of nothing? And what's the reason for that? So uh, those are a couple of the questions that were immediately onto the top of my mind, as well as like the problem of like good and evil. But I guess I wanted to pose that first question at you. Like what, what, is, what do you think is stopping people from being able to think sociologically? I do think that it is, it's really difficult to think sociologically. And even I, I struggle with it as well because you, well, there's a, there's a level of it, not just difficulty, but it is a little scary to think that like your actions that you take to be very personal and that you um, attribute to your intentions, that they could be the result of something else that's out of your control, or at least something else that's out of your control is a really, really important part of why you act or the consequences that your actions have. I think that that's a scary thought, that to some extent, your intentions in a situation are actually sort of secondary or tertiary to what that situation actually means, like what really happens in a situation. It's a scary thought. But the other is that it just is difficult to be able to carry out that analysis because in some way you have to remove, you have to remove agents and intentions from the situation, which is how we're so used to thinking. We think about, oh, I did X because I thought Y, or I did X because I believe Z um, would result. And it's like sociology doesn't, sociology doesn't take that to be the explanation. Sociology takes into account that you think that was the explanation. Like a sociologist right. would say, okay, that's really interesting that you think that's why you did that. I'm going to record that and make that a part of my data set. That's really useful. Thank you for telling me. But you have to you have to zoom out and say that's actually just one piece of the data set about what happened is the like what you what you thought you were doing but right. that isn't the truth of the situation the truth of the situation is not what you thought you were doing and it doesn't matter how unracist you think you are or in the intentions of your heart were like like what was the outcome and what was the context of what you did right I know that in some conversations with um, conservatives, there's always this, especially if they find out that I read, you know, Foucault and Marx and the rest, right? There's like this challenge that is issued where they say, well, do you believe that humans are 100% uh, shaped by their environment? Period. And as if, and then, you know, they'll usually follow it up by saying, well, this is what Marx and Foucault and the other, you know, uh, postmodern, uh, neo-Marxists um, uh, say, I, I don't take that term very seriously, but uh, they'll say, well, this is what they believe, right? They believe that people are entirely shaped by their surroundings or by their by their group, right? Um, and of course, the question is like a false question because like none of those people would actually say that or believe in that. But I think that there there's this moral dimension on the line where if you say 
hey, like there are things outside of your control that are like you're shaped by your context, like you're shaped by what has made you and the decisions that you're making may not be all that they seem. There's like this loss of something moral within the conservative framework that they're desperate to hold on to. Uh, they see it as like a direct attack against any sort of kind of systematic moral framework, I think. Yeah, the logic here is if if you are completely controlled by your environment, then you can't be held responsible for your actions. That's that's Precisely. The, that's yep. the that's the theory, but I don't I reject that theory. Yep. I think that we can say that your actions are on the whole a product of your environment, not completely, but mostly. Um and we can also say people should nonetheless be held responsible for their actions. Yeah, one doesn't wipe out the other. No, it's this idea that like if if we don't have absolute freedom, that there's no one can be blameworthy for their actions. And and one, I, I think the I think the idea of freedom is is absurd. The, the, as it's sort of philosophically debated, doesn't have any meaning. But the I don't think that we need to have that concept of freedom in order to hold people responsible. I think that, like I explained earlier, the only thing you need in order to hold somebody responsible is for them to be addressable in language. They have to be a subject right. in language such that I could address them. And that's the only criteria I need to be able to hold somebody responsible. Right. Uh, so in the paper, you bring up, I, I think kind of like the main example, uh, you bring up two, um, one which we've brought up, which is, cop killings um and the second is the issue of like pedophilia that seemed to rise up really really strongly during the kind of uh the uh panic over COVID 19 and that was um mainly instigated by like conservative news outlets and and conservative pundits and conservative speakers um you talk about how this reveals something this like uh what's your quote here you say I think the ease with which conservatives accept the story that the media is trying to distract you from child molesters, quote, reveals something about them beyond their widespread mistrust of news outlets. Okay, so you you kind of, uh, I think that that's really interesting, but I also think that you, you list these four things that contribute to this line of reasoning that is very common in conservative thinking. One, the fundamental good enoughness of the current system, right? So there's like this inherent trust of the system as is. Two, their uh, good or neutral agents generally outnumber bad agents. Three, bad outcomes are the result of evil people making evil choices. And four, the system as a whole cannot be blamed for the outcomes produced by the choices of a few evil people, right? So I kind of want to get, maybe let's go into detail on like what exactly we're talking about within these four points. And specifically how this relates to, for example, the examples you bring up of, say, mass pedoph pedophilic gangs um, and rings or uh, cop shootings. Yeah, well, the reason I kind of honed in on the whole pedophilia narrative was I think it's really easy for conservatives to take on board because what's interesting about pedophilia is just how cut and dry evil it is, as well as how cut and dry the relations are it's like there's there is a pedophile and there is an innocent child and that pedophile is preying on the innocent child and it, it's sort of not more complicated than that 
There is a quote-unquote evil person with evil desires who wants to commit evil things to an innocent person, and it just instantly inflames your moral outrage. It's just so obviously evil. But it's not evil in the same way that like a banker passing off really shitty um, mortgage-backed securities to another bank so that eventually the whole global economic system collapses. It's not evil in that sort of complicated, ambiguous way that right. like the real structural evil of the world is. It's, it's very cut-and-dry, banal evil that's very easy to accept if you're focused on particular agents who are blameworthy or not blameworthy for actions. Yeah, you have this other this other great quote called uh, in your paper. You say the right begins societal analysis by positing an essentially mysterious line of evil cutting through the body politic. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's this it's this idea that fundamentally there is like the group is generally good, and then there is just there's this deep there's this mysterious evil. That is always lurking. It's always the possibility of this evil breaking out somewhere. And it's always that the, the good in the group are at war with this evil sort of seeping into everything. And it, it's always sort of operating underground. Um, it's, it's this idea that like the conservative is always afraid to replace the current system because they're afraid that no matter how bad the current system is, they always assume that it's more likely that the next system will be worse because of this evil. There's, the evil is this eternal, ever-present possibility of every single human and community, which means that any single attempt to solve problems, it always has this sort of potential infinite downside, which makes it very costly, which makes them very reticent to try to implement any changes because, well, the system we have, it kind of works for me. And yeah, it's kind of shitty for a lot of people, but I can imagine, you know, 20 different worse systems that are just as likely to come out if we try to replace the current system. So you've got this, um, a quote that you didn't actually include within the paper, within the essay itself, but I think is really appropriate here. You say, this negativity becomes a radical pessimism, which deflates any motivation for social reform. And finally, the agent finds themselves existing in a cynical compliance with the current social arrangements, right? And I think that this is something that kind of goes to the very heart of the conservative psychology, which is to, well, to conserve and to protect, right? I think that there's this, what you're pointing out here is kind of like this ability for this sort of ideology to protect itself, does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's a way of continually justifying the status quo. Like I, you know, conservatives talk about how like they <clears throat> there's they are trying to be kind of this voice of criticism and this voice in the wilderness. You know, like like the oh we we should you know things are fundamentally things fundamentally work as they are and we can just kind of make tweaks and changes on the margins. And it's just like, I don't know. Like to, to me, it's sort of like, no, we should just find like, if something works, let's keep it. If it doesn't work, let's come up with a better idea. Right. And this is what you're talking about in your first point, which is the fundamental good enoughness of the current system. Right. I think that there's this, 
emphasis on, uh, well, there is this emphasis on the, on the status quo, but it's not like there's this, uh, it's not accurate to say that there's just simply this, like, uh, there's this affirmation of the status quo as if it is perfect, right? In fact, you'll hear many conservatives saying, oh, uh, they'll quote, like, I, th I think there's like this, I don't know if it's a real quote by Benjamin Franklin, but it's, it's floating around where they say, democracy isn't the best system, uh, it's it's the worst system, but it's the best one we've got, right? Or something like that, right? Not to disparage democracy. What I'm saying is that this is actually a really classic way in which we kind of pass away any attempts for social reformers by saying, yeah, it sucks, but it's all we got, you know? And so we just got to work with what we've got. Yeah, that's the, it's, you might be thinking of the quote from Winston Churchill, who says uh, that Churchill. Yeah, you're capitalism right. is the worst economic system, but it's, uh, but all the rest are worse than it or something, something like yes. that. Yes. I wish I could remember better. I used to when I liked capitalism. Um, but, but, uh, like it, it is it, like conservatives, they do eulogize the American system, but you will at the end of the day, get from them con consistently a admission that the system is not perfect, that it does, that it is not the, it's not the absolute best one that could possibly exist. It's not even the best one for, you know, even their constituents, you know, um, it doesn't, it really doesn't work well for poor whites, you know, uh, which is really interesting, but that's like exactly how they justify not doing anything about it, which is fascinating. It's, it's, it goes back to what I said earlier of like the good enoughness is how they decide to just keep going with what we have because the alternative is scarier they have this idea yes. of just there's this radical evil you know they're like you know any idea any attempt to reform our system is going to inevitably end up in looking like the ussr but it, but there's right. just there's so much space in there there's so many different things that we could try and we're not russia we're different you know like like fundamentally it's just it's this absolute lack of courage to experiment and I think that I agree with your point about courage. I think that's really important. And I think that kind of to bring it back to the idea of sociology is this, <clears throat> and kind of something that I brought up in our introduction as well, is that this sort of attitude, I think it's working to protect something. And I think that there is some, there are some like good things there, right? So like Lewis says that, uh, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. And I think that Lewis is, you know, I think that that could definitely be co-opted by conservatism in a, in a bad way. Uh, but I think that Lewis is kind of wrapping up this great lesson in very kind of fantastical language, right? And so I like this idea of strengthening yourself and, and combating bad things, right? Like, I think that there is there's bad stuff in this world and there is evil and uh there are people that are extremely cruel who do extremely cruel things you know go talk to anyone that was alive during the massacres in rwanda right like we know bad stuff happens but i guess my primary problem with this attitude that we've been talking about is that it actually blinds us to what is actually happening you know and i think that capitalism is a great example because our own you know, uh, our own propaganda blinds us to the fact that, you know, for example, there are other economics and, and other, dem uh, 
economic and governmental systems that have worked really, really well in other countries, and the United States was instrumental in toppling them over and destroying them, right? But if we if we can only affirm the status quo in, which, in whichever clever way we want to, we actually blind ourselves to those evils, right? And we blind and we actually strip ourselves of the tools to address them. It's also important to note that no economic system exists. There's no instantiation of isms. There's just particular economies. And what is an economy? But it's a vast network of human beings relating to one another, transferring value. So like there, there is no like, like there, there's, there's no ism. There's no like you have to pick one. There's just what can you build as a society? Can you build something different? It's like when you start to think about it that way, you go, oh, okay, uh, maybe I could imagine a particular type of organization that is the where the leadership is structured like X and we reach consensus through, and then, then you're talking. And here's the thing. That's exactly what people like the founders did. Right. That's what's so fascinating about the, the conservatives who worship the founders is that the founders were not conservatives. Right. <laughs> the founders, <Right. laughs> they developed a unique system. They rebelled against the king. Real conservatives would have sided with the king. What's more conservative than a king? The, the monarch. King, you know, the monarchy works. And, you know, if you guys replace the monarchy with something, you know, like we saw what happened you know, during the Reformation with those Anabaptists and everything went crazy when they tried democracy. And, you know, it's like, okay, you can make the same damn arguments. But like right. when you're conservative, you're just standing there on the wreckage on, on, well, not the wreckage. You're standing on the shoulders of all the people who have carried out a revolution before you. And you are acting like the people who would have stopped them. You Precisely. are using the mindset of the people who would have said, no, don't try that, but you're enjoying the benefits of it. So let's talk. Great point. I agree with you. Um, I think that they're okay. So, so I, I started your essay. I read it when you first released it. And then I studied a little bit uh, to prepare for our episode today. And I have my own list of reasons why I think stuff like this crops up, right? But I want to ask you, speaking sociologically, what do you think, not speaking about conservatives, speaking generally, maybe universally, what are some barriers that you see inherent in sociological thinking? Well, I think I would start by saying, like, I think it's really difficult to define, like, the the edges of communities. I think that the, the first step, like, when you're trying, when you're, when you're a sociologist, and I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not even super duper confident, uh, competent to be answering this question. Um, but I think that one of the big things is when you are, when you're trying to study communities, it's actually really difficult to kind of define like the limits of the community and especially where like all the communities overlap. I think I'm always so, I'm always so shocked when I think about how many different communities I am the product of and how, yeah the like overlapping of those communities could have produced a very different type of Matthew or a very different type of person. If anything about me had been different, like if I had been a woman, I think that I would be a very different person, you know, being in the communities that I was in. Like for instance, I think I would be a lot more angry and bitter and unhappy 
because I probably wouldn't have been given the freedom to ask the questions that I was given that I did. I wouldn't have been given the freedom to question and to act and to take a leadership role, you know, in, in the church and in certain uh, realms of ecclesial life. Um, I wouldn't have that chance. And I think I probably would have been like much angrier and unhappy because I didn't get that chance. So it's, I think about all of these different communities and their boundaries and how they interact with each other. And um, I guess maybe it's not a super scientific answer, but to me, that's, that's what's really interesting about sociology is how are we a product of things that are outside of ourselves and how are forces that are bigger than us that we don't understand, how, are, how do they appear in even the tiniest details in our life? And I think that we need to have that perspective. That's not, um, that's not the one and only true perspective. I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I'm not, I don't subscribe to scientism that, you know, science is the way of conceptualizing objective reality that is most true. I, I don't subscribe to that. I think science is just another very useful language game. But I think that we miss so much if we don't have that sociological perspective because we get stuck on intentions and agents and blame and good versus evil and, you know, this person, it doesn't like, even though this is what happened, that doesn't matter because they meant X in their heart. Like that analysis really bogs us down. And it's not super helpful when you're trying to come up with new alternatives to develop a hypothesis and test it. Because you can't test that. You can't test intentions and attitudes. It's not something that you can replay like a scenario. No. I, I agree with you. I, th- I think, uh, and I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of this from you as well, but I think that the thing that strikes me most about sociology, I love sociology. You know this. I, uh, but for anyone listening, like, uh, I fell in love with the sociology. I took a sociology 101 class, classic, and uh, fell in love with the study of sociology. And I think that one of the things that well, the first thing that struck me about sociology is how they were asking questions that I had been trying to ask. Uh, their questions were way better j- j- right off the bat, and their answers were way better too. Um, but we were, I sensed a lot of people that were trying to attempt a similar project as me. But I think that the thing that has stuck out the longer I've stuck with sociology is how difficult structural critique is, right? Structural critique is extremely difficult. And, um, I think that sociology and thinking sociologically opens your it opens you up to an extreme amount of variance and error. Uh, I think that uh, one of the you know uh, Wittgenstein calls it the uh, craving for generality, right? Uh, Levinas calls them totalities, right? The evil of totalities. That uh, there's this there's this desire in people to kind of find some sort of overwhelming system or idea that kind of encapsulates everything that they know, right? This is what, you know, when it comes to like worldview talk, for example, when they say, oh, they have an atheist worldview, right? It's a way of like objectifying the other in such a way that actually uh, makes them understandable. But it's actually false, right? People don't think in worldviews, right? Worldviews don't exist. Um, 
And I think that in philosophy and theology, there's always this tendency for people to use that as, as a way to like pick their boxer, you know? So like the, the Thomists will pick Thomas Aquinas and they fight, they use Thomas Aquinas to fight against all the other philosophies in the world, right? But in sociology, there can't, there's, it's very, very difficult to do that. People still do that, but it's very, very difficult because you're surrounded by people attempting to make, to answer questions that they are unable to answer fully, right? And so that it's like a very difficult thing to even communicate, right? I think that like most people want clear, concise answers that are going to be able to solve a problem very quickly. But sociology doesn't do that. Sociology actually this is like the this is the struggle with like a lot of the early like Max Weber and um Durkheim a lot of their literature was talking about like hey what does it mean to study sociology because like we're not exactly a hard science but we're also not exactly like not a science you know like we are a science but we're not like providing really clear cut solutions to these problems right but i think that, that is also the value of sociology is that we are surrounded by limited finite creatures that are all trying to ask really really complex questions that are beyond them i think that that in, that incompleteness point is really important <clears throat> that the sociologist always has to keep in mind the incompleteness of their own paradigm because like you were saying, the temptation of the human being, and this is therefore the temptation of the sociologist, is to have this mental paradigm where you think that you've sort of mapped the system and it's like right. whole and it's complete and all the parts work. But the fact is that the moment you arrive at that perfect, complete paradigm, you can be sure that you're wrong. Now, maybe there's part of it that's helpful, but <clears throat> fundamentally that is that's a fantastical structure and right. this is just a brief a brief excursus on lacan fantasy the the sort of narrative uh, uh, imagining narratives which i think a paradigm of a system is imagining a narrative you know x happens and x relates to y and you know that sort of thing it's a, it, there's a you have a fantastical construction fantasies exist to cover over inconsistencies in systems. So for Lacan, every system is incomplete. It contains its own failure. It contains its own inconsistencies. And what human beings do is we, we fantasize in order to cover over and fill in those inconsistent gaps in things. So there, we could talk about that more another time, but it's important to not operate like, like sociology is not operating as a like, like a more scientific way of fantasizing about how the system works. That needs to be the temptation that sociology avoids. Uh, so really interestingly, I, I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, last year in the wintertime, um, and I really liked it. Uh, and he, I, I think this is kind of a way in which we can bridge your excursus between uh, Lacan and uh, the conversation on sociology, because I think that Coates does this really, really well, right? He he has this example in the very beginning of his uh, book where he is, if I remember correctly, he is sitting on like a uh, talking panel or he's being interviewed by someone, right? And she basically asks him, you know, like, what is this whole racism, like structural racism, institutionalized racism thing? Uh, why does it exist? What is it? Blah, 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 blah. Talk to me about it. Convince me. 
that it exists. Essentially, is the, is like the question that she's posing him, right? And then he he says that as he was looking at her and attempting to formulate an answer, he lost hope, or he felt despair. Perhaps is a better way to put it, because he he realized that in order to convince her he would have to wake her up from what he calls the most gorgeous dream and then he has this phenomenal uh he has this phenomenal uh quote where he actually start he begins talking about the dream as a proper noun so he starts capitalizing the d in dream uh he says i have seen that dream all my life it is the perfect houses with nice lawns it is more memorial day cookouts block associations and driveways the dream is tree houses and cub scouts the dream smells like peppermint, but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for as long, for so long, I have wanted to escape into the dream, to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies, right? And then he goes into this long explanation on the black body and the violence that is done against the black body in the United States, right? Anyway, I mean, like, he's just a phenomenal writer. And it. I think it resonates so much with your point that... The, the primary drawback towards sociological or systemic thinking uh, and systematic thinking altogether is the dream because the dream is simple, right? You can you can fold your country or your religion or your ideology or your you know politic, you know your political association over your head, and you can forget about the real problem of sociological thinking, which is that the further you drill into a problem, the more problems you find, right? Like you know you read Durkheim on suicide, and it's like. I mean, it's like he just brings up so many problems, right? Like every time he's like addressing one thing, and this is the value of a man like Nicholas Luhmann, right? Is that like you drill down and you just find so many more problems the further you d- dive down. Uh, and it can be, you know, it's, it's, ex- it's extraordinarily difficult. It is just simply more easy to escape into the dream. Yeah, your point in the dream is well taken especially because I think we could formulate the task of sociology as the unearthing and examination of society's dreams. I I think that we can, we can formulate it as the, the dream is actually something that is produced in us by the system. The, the system, again, the system is incomplete. It doesn't function perfectly. There are inconsistencies and antagonisms within it. And so what happens is that inevitably a a dream, a fantasy arises to cover over those inconsistencies. And inevitably that dream, that fantasy is what operates at the kind of individual level to keep the whole thing functioning. So what we want to do in sociological work is unearth the fantasy that is operating at the individual level level and the fantasy that's operating at the societal level how are those two connected how are they getting produced do different people have different fantasies um, within society and do they fit into the same fantasy in different ways because of their different structural positions Um, Hmm. there's there are all kinds of questions and what it comes down to is how does the system work and how does the system keep people from noticing it doesn't work those are the two questions. So in apply, yeah, really well said. And in applying that, so th- these are the three things I mentioned it earlier, but these are the three things that um, um, rose to my mind as kind of like 
uh, sociological reasons why, or, or at least reasons why this phenomena that you're critiquing in conservatism arises. Um, when it comes to like assigning blame to you know these black and white good and evil agents as opposed to assigning blame to say structures, societal structures, right? So the first point that I have actually resonates a lot with Durkheim on suicide, um, and that is ambition and hope, right? So conservatives especially, but I think that okay, actually, so this is a great argument against more than just conservatives because you know the the bourgeois liberal is just as bad about this, right? Um, so, you know, the conservative and the bourgeois liberal, you know, the middle class liberal, both affirm the status quo because they seek their own excellence and security within it, right? This is why, like, you'll hear, you know, liberals talk about color and blindness all the time is because they, they don't want to actually address the problem of, say, institutionalized racism because they see their own enshrinement within the system. In other words, they see themselves in the system and they're just as unwilling to remove the status quo as any any other conservative right this is the point that durkheim makes about suicide and capitalism he 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 you know notices the rot that wherever capitalism strikes let's say suicide rates just skyrocket i mean just they go through the roof right and he's asking why that is and one of the answers that he has is because uh hope functions within this system so that people can always you know people always have this illusion that maybe someday they'll be a millionaire Right, and so they're unwilling to kind of get rid of a system that is literally killing people and and causing vast amounts of structural inequality in this for the you know zero point zero one percent chance that they might be able to get in right get into that top echelon right, and I think the second point is something that we've talked about quite a bit, which is fling responsibility. Um, structural critique is extremely difficult, and it is easier to find an agent to assign blame because it allows for a very simple good versus evil dynamic to run free. Um, not only, and this not only allows for, you're able to very easily apply blame to the other, but I think you're also able to remove blame from oneself, right? So the whole problem with like the black and white narrative is that there's someone over there who's evil, but that also means that I am good, right? I am kind of pushing forward the standard of righteousness, as it were. And then thirdly, I think that it just fits very cleanly within the conservative political structure and psychology. Yeah, I agree with you that the, the, the stories that sociology produces are just not satisfying. They're yeah. not, because there's not one bad guy. There's a, there's a group of imperfect human beings who are all complicit on various levels. And complicity is the way to put it, because they, they are involved somehow they participate and to some extent their their actions have greater consequences than they understand and their ideas about what they're doing are not quite matching up to reality and so you know there's always the question of like oh you know to what extent are people responsible it's like well it's kind of a it's kind of a boring question because it's not going to get you much right it's not going to get you very far towards a solution of asking who's responsible um but what's really fascinating about it is it's just not satisfying because to some extent everyone is complicit in a system that none of them is actually responsible for right i i think that and this is where i think it's especially important as well especially considering you know conservative dialogue in the 21st century i i think that it's 
it's very useful to talk about what strategy is being employed here, right? Because I, I don't think that, and I, I hope I don't sound too negative here, but I think, I think that in my experience, you know, growing up in a really conservative household, being surrounded by conservatives my entire life, I think that it's not even enough to say that, well, there's just this dynamic of good versus evil, and they are just kind of blinded by this uh, moral dynamic that causes them to like act this way, right? I, I do think that that is part of it, but I also think that there's a strategy that is being invoked because there's another pain point somewhere, right? And I want to talk about where that pain point is. Like, you know, why is it that people think this way? Like, wh what is the strategy? Like, what are they trying to get over? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I, I, know, I know what you're asking. I, I don't have an answer for you right now, though. Um, I, I agree with you that, like, again, if we're going to be talking about fantasy, fantasy is always filling in a gap of some sort of inconsistency. Right. And if the fantasy that conservatives rely on in our country is primarily that of the like good person with good intentions or the bad person with bad intentions, then that fantasy is doing something. It's functioning in order to cover up some system. And the desperation to use that fantasy is definitely coming from somewhere. It comes from a desire. Fantasy and desire are intimately related. In fantasy, actually, how, how fantasy works in Lacan is that the subject stages in a narrative the loss and regainment of their object of desire. So the story of the fantasy is losing and then regaining the thing that you desire. And I think that the beginning to think that way, we think through... How does the story that we tell ourselves where we've lost something and we get something back, how do those stories fill in the gaps in our understanding? And what are those stories doing? What are they keeping us from? What are they reconciling us to so that we um, don't change things? Right. And I think as a final note too, there is, this is also not to say that what is happening in this dream, in this uh, what is happening in this dream is not also structural in and of itself, right? I, I think that this goes to my last question, which was, what are the, uh, how is it that for some people evil seems to very mysteriously like arise in the social dy dynamic, right? Like it rises up kind of mysteriously out of nothing. Um, and I think that this, I mean, this is definitely a conversation for another time, but I think that the reason why this exists is because of a of you know one of the structures of kind of like even uh, Christian um, American uh, virtue uh, theology, right, or um, moral theology, right. This idea of of sin kind of bleeds into the way that we, or a particular view of what sin is, bleeds into how we understand other people, and it bleeds into how we understand why agents commit particular. Uh, moral injustices, right? Um, I kind of want to leave it there. I think that's something that we can bring up in our next episode. Um, the idea of evil rising up out of nowhere, but I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts, Matthew. No, I definitely have thoughts about that and I would love to discuss it more. Uh, I feel like maybe the next step for this conversation, maybe not the next episode, but the next step kind of thinking 
sociology sociologically is probably us doing some structural critique that we think is a model for how to do structural critique. Um, so we may have to have to give that some thought and, and do some, do, do some research. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. Um, I love sociology and I love the enterprise. So I agree with you. All right. Well, thanks, Tyler. I appreciate you reading my paper. Um, and I honestly, I have like, there's kind of a planned part two and part three, um, where I kind of want to look at kind of the left's own form of like, uh, of this. I think that the left kind of does this in a slightly more sophisticated way um, yes. that also kind of misses the mark. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to include it in the original essay because I didn't want to feel like I was just exclusively shitting on conservatives. Right. But I felt like, you know, I actually do kind of want to focus the paper just on conservatives to not try to muddy the waters too much. So maybe we could talk about that at another point. But um, yeah, I absolutely I'm really happy to talk about this. And it's just something I'm working through for myself as I try to think more clearly about the world that I live in and the people around me, um, trying to see what's getting in my way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think that this is, it's really healthy because these are problems that you and I both have struggled with, you know, in relation to conservatives. And I'm really glad that your project is moving on towards the left as well, because, and you know this, like I have my own frustrations for the exact same problems in the left. And I agree with you. I think that the strategies that they invoke are oftentimes much more subtle and much more clever in some ways, but nonetheless still pose the same problem. So anyway, that's it for us this week, guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Matt, love you. I'll talk to you later. Love you, brother. Have a great night, everybody.